Billions of gremlins can attack you that you won't see coming. Relationship woes, money issues, extreme cases of the swamp. Ayos! So many people and situations and things can happen to you that you haven't even thought of. Seneca once said, perhaps, It is foolish to be unhappy now just because you may be unhappy at some future time. Because doing that just guarantees that you are sucking out happiness all of the time. But things aren't going to happen like you think sometimes. And that's not really important. The important question is, do you want to be happy regardless of the outcome? Or do you want to be miserable regardless of the outcome? You are here on this sexy planet to enjoy and grow within your experience. You are not here to shit your pants, suffer, and wither away. Although all of us like to experience those things anyway. You are reborn and you will die. But in between, you choose if you want to be happy or not. Happiness is a decision. It is a choice. Events don't choose for you. Other people don't choose for you. Religions don't choose for you. Billboards don't choose for you. Justin Bieber doesn't choose for you, but Shakira or J-Lo might after that Super Bowl, Super Bowl performance uh, yesterday. <laughs> Not much has changed. Choose to be happy. Be happy just to breathe. Be happy to experience all the magical things that happen to you every single day. Be happy to expect more magical things to happen to you every moment of every day moving forward. Be happy to expect mass abundance is coming your way. Be happy to learn from your hardships. Be happy to dance with other beautiful souls during the experience. Be happy for wet wipes to clean up that disastrous swamp ass. Be happy to live. Be happy to die. When you choose to be happy, your heart will open up like space. It will kiss your mind and your gut. There will be no more internal conflict. Your intuition will become turbo fuel of your purpose. Your spirit's going to wrap its rings around the pain in the world and inside of your body and all of the people around you, and it's going to help all of the lighthouses come to build. You are important to me. Are you important to you? What is the benefit of not being happy? That's what I thought. I'll see you on the rainbow. I am Heath Armstrong, and this is Never Stop Peaking. It's depressing like a dimple on your butt If you behave, you'll get a nickel you can spend on stuff And in time, you'll get a dime if you impress your boss So you can buy some more stuff just to numb your thoughts You've been a space-driven higgity hunk of me since birth Flying through the universe on a rock called Earth Composed of stardust with an emotional gut Why you letting conformity slam you up the butt? You're not one fucks, two fucks, red fucks, blue fucks You can play duck hunt and wait around for luck Or you can rent a big truck and drive your vision Build a palace to the moon while your schmuck friends piss their pants Get up and dance, rocket ship that booty Take a chance for your freedom, make it he built that booby Cause when the fear attacks, it tries to crack what you're thinking Fuck no, you'll never stop peeking ladies and gents Boys and girls what is up? 
Hope you are having a fantastic day as always. You are a sexy motherfucker. Don't forget that. Today we got a lot of health, personal optimization. I'm not going to waste too much time because the interview with David Krantz is amazing. But there were a lot of topics that we didn't get to dive into as deep as I wanted to because of our lack of time for today. Um, Because of that, I'm going to cover some of these things before we get into the interview so that you can be juiced up a little bit, primed up and ready to go for uh, David and myself. Not in a sexual way, but, you know, in a, in a great, in a great uh, philosophical, health, healthy way, right? <laughs> David is quite a remarkable dude. So in 2019, he was nominated to be in the top 100 healthcare innovator list by International Forum for Advancements in Healthcare. Uh, he developed a propri- proprietary genetic test for endocannabinoid systems. He's an advisor to the AMMA Healing as a specialist on the genetic of endocannabinoid systems and the director of applied psychoacoustics at the Aperion Center. Sorry if I mispronounced any of that. My vocabulary is terrible. Uh, I was talking to him a lot about personal optimization and kind of making mass transformations in your body, with your mind, with your health. And this is the type of thing that gets me super pumped and excited because, well, as most of you know, I went through a mass transformation myself, which was a, basically the anchor of everything that I've ever been able to create, accomplish, and move towards. And it's the only reason that I'm sitting here now talking to you. And I cannot stress enough the importance of doing this kind of thing for yourself, to analyzing why you feel a certain way, if you're feeling cloudy, if you're feeling painful, if you're feeling depressed, and then figure out how you can overcome that remove the blockages and start building little blocks that will help you become the most optimal version of yourself. It's not as complicated as one may think. Even if you're blind doing it by yourself and just feeling out what actually makes you feel healthy and good, it can be done. Your intuition is a magical beast. It can guide you in the right place. It can slap you on the ass and say, hey, listen to me, feel this little booty squeeze. And you'll listen and you'll say, ah, I kind of like that or eh. I'm going to listen to my gremlins instead and go pound this bottle of booze until I wake up face down, pants down. It's your choice, ultimately. And I've got David on because he's brilliant. And he's brilliant in his transformation that he made for himself. And he's brilliant in just, I mean, he's he's one of these dudes that you talk to and you can just kind of tell that he's obsessed with this health stuff because it is perhaps the most fascinating thing ever to be healthy because it directly flows into every other aspect of your life. And why live if you're not looking to be optimal, if you're not looking to be the happiest version of yourself, if you're not looking to eliminate suffering, if you're not looking to be a lighthouse for everyone else, what's the point? Sure, you could be a projection or a reflection of world issues. That's fine too. But it won't necessarily mean that it's the most feel-good type of life. He has a cheat sheet at davidkrantz.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-K-R-A-N-T-Z. And it is all about biohacking. And as I was going through it, I was actually just like overcoming with just excitement and remembering all of the things that I went through when I was in the throes of the war with the demons, which really hasn't completely stopped yet, but it did for a while. And 
I want to just briefly talk about some of these biohacking techniques that he covers. And you can get more detail if you go download that at his site. And I highly suggest it. And I'll put the link in the show notes. But um, circadian rhythm, okay? How do, how do we get to a point where we're optimum, optimally creating and thinking and interacting and experiencing the world? Well, you can't get there unless you take care of yourself internally first. And one of the biggest influential factors on the way that your internal system works is your link to your sleep patterns and the patterns of the world in general. You are not separate from the world. You are part of the world. So it makes total sense that as the sun rises and as the sun falls, built into your DNA for millions of years, you're supposed to be waking and going to sleep in pattern, not disrupting the pattern. It wasn't until the last 100 years or so that we get all these bright lights and electricity and crazy technology that keeps us awake and keeps us constantly using things to desensitize us, but also to, uh, what's the word? Um, Just stimulate us. Things to constantly stimulate us away from feeling ourselves and feeling our pattern with the world and feeling how natural we actually are. Circadian rhythm is something that happens in your body. And it's it basically sleep, light, and food are the biggest controllers of your circadian rhythm. So how do you make a consistent 24-hour routine in your body so that you can experience a regular hormone cycle? That's the question. Most people, and we'll get to this in the interview a little bit, that that are able to do this to wake with the sunlight, to black their rooms out at night and get good sleep, um, and to go to sleep and wind down at night without using massive amounts of electronics before going to sleep are going to see a reduction in inflammation and a boost in creativity and healthiness and just all around ass slaps and high fives. It's a natural rhythm that we're supposed to be entangled with. How much sun can you absorb into your skin? You know, those types of things. Um, and when you're not doing it, you're actually susceptible to disease and carcinogen type reactions uh, in your body. And we talk about that in the interview as well. Reducing blue light. So we didn't get too much into this in the interview, but it's very important that you take care of yourself because of all the computers and screens around us. This type of thing exposes us and it basically creates a suppression of melatonin production, which is an important sleep hormone and antioxidant. Antioxidant. Um, and without getting sleep and without having this important, um, hormone, you know, we get a lot more anxiety, a lot more depression and a lot other conditions can creep in as well. And there's screen blockers out there. There's apps that'll change the color of your screens. There's glasses that you can buy to block light. There's timers that you can put on your lights at home to have them turn off at certain times to remind you to quit watching your television, to have your Wi-Fi connection turn off. I mean, all of these electronic devices are, devices are creating electromagnetic frequencies. These frequencies are basically creating free radicals in your body that lead to things like cancer and other types of diseases that are very serious. And we don't have a lot of study yet because technology hasn't been around long enough to really take a look at the body and be like, wow, these things are creating a massive amount of damage. Free radicals are creating damage. Well, how do you remove free, free radicals? Antioxidants is one big way. And so we talk about earthing and grounding as well later, which is essentially 
We actually don't talk about it much, but I want to talk about it right now. It's essentially the idea of getting outside without any shoes on and absorbing the frequency of the earth in through the bottom of your feet. You can get more antioxidants by doing that than eating an entire tub of blueberries and just 10 minutes of standing outside without your shoes on. It's no fucking joke. It's very healing. Go standing on the sand and the beach, getting in the ocean, swimming around, absorbing all of the natural things that the earth has to offer you to keep your system in function and optimal health. We're wearing rubber, rubber soles on our shoes every fucking day. We're covering our bodies and blocking it from all complete sunlight. We're sitting inside all day, and the only light we're ingesting is shit coming off of our TV and our computers. It's not fucking healthy. It's not healthy. So you can go read more about blue light blockers and get lots of links to the good stuff in his guide as well. Um, he has great stuff for earthing and grounding too, as, as well as some uh, suggestions for these sandals that actually have a copper um, piece on the bottom of them that will translate more, uh, more earthing. You know, that sounds pretty fucking hippie, but I'm, t- I'm telling you it fucking works. It really, really works. And I've used up my limit for F-bombs today. Okay. <sighs> intermittent fasting is another thing that's on his list. I'm not going to get too far into this, but if you are somebody who struggles with weight gain, this can be tied to epigenetics, genetics, uh, neutro economics, all these big terms that he throws around in this interview. And once you figure out what your DNA is and what your optimal diet is, you can then use things like intermittent fasting Um, to remove toxins from your body, which are huge. Omega-3s versus omega-6s, very, very fascinating. Uh, Something that I just learned from his guide last night. The average human is consuming a 20 to 1 ratio, literally the average diet for most Americans, a 20 to 1 ratio of omega-6 over omega-3. Now, we need more of a 1 to 1 ratio. So if you're experiencing brain fog or low energy and you're looking for more energy and stress resilience and you're also eating foods that are basically cooked with all of these saturated fatty oils and things like that, restaurants are the worst for this type of thing. You'd be wise to, in the words of David, shift your dietary habits in favor of omega-3s over omega-6s. So we want to balance, but right now we're getting a 20 to 1 ratio of 6 over 3 because it's in everything. So these are fats that are incorporated into the lining of all your cells and they literally help create the structure of your body. It's important stuff. The key is not so much taking more omega-3s because you're probably getting a lot of that. It's reducing the consumption of omega-6. So you can learn all about that as well if you go check out his guide Uh, reducing toxin exposure is a huge one. Teflon pans, you know, BPA plastic and all of the replacements that they're making for BPA, all just as toxic. Glyphosate. Holy shit. We've killed 99% of our farmers in America with this chemical. I suggest go listening to some interviews with Zach Bush on the Rich Roll podcast. If you want to learn more about glyphosate and the effect that it's had on major health and diseases, that guy, Zach Bush, is one of the most influential people ever to me. And it's all directly related to your gut health, which is all directly related to the way that your body reacts to your circadian rhythm, to your optimal health. It's very, very, very 
informative and important, and everyone should listen to what he has to say. So go check those out. You can learn all about it. It's it's some of the most fascinating stuff in the world. Um, but generally, avoid parabens. Avoid plastic. Um, avoid synthetic things altogether because most of them are creating some sort of disturbance to you. Organic foods, this should be a no-brainer. And I think there's a stat somewhere that if we were all, if, if, if just 12% of the population switched completely to consuming organic foods, it could collapse Bayer and Monsanto's market for non-organic foods and for GMOs. Think about how ridiculous that is. Just 12% of us. And I know the numbers on the rise because people are getting smart, but there's a lot of shit out there that you're eating that is directly putting toxins into your body. Like corn-fed meat, come on. Corn is the most sprayed sprayed crop with pesticides. And it just absorbs into the fat of the animals, which absorbs into you when you eat it. Anything that's non-organic is probably a good stay away. I mean, there are some things that are clean that even if they're not organic, they don't use any chemicals on them. And you can look that stuff up by just Googling the, the, I think it's the dirty 30 and the clean dozen or something like that. Clean 15 and the dirty 30, I believe. Um, Print those out, put them on your refrigerator and make sure that when you're at the store, never buy the things that are on that dirty 30 list. And some of those things are like potatoes, right? Tomatoes, all of the nightshades, eggplant, cucumbers, peppers, which aren't really that good for your gut anyways. But it, it could be, I mean, as we discussed in this interview, your genetics have a lot to do with this. But nectarines, apples, peaches, strawberries, spinach, kale, collards, lettuce, all of those things, you always want to buy organic. And... There's other things that aren't as important, like bananas and avocados, I think, are some of those that are on the clean 15. Meditation and heart rate variability, he's got a big section on that. I highly suggest checking it out. I talk a lot lot about meditation here, but it's interesting because we get into how meditation can actually change the way that your genes act from here on out into the future and the way that you experience life. And I think I had a big... um, I had a big version of that happen to myself throughout my transformation. High intensity exercises. He's got a big portion about how just doing heavy strength training in short spurts, just high intensity stuff in less amounts of time can actually increase your health massively compared to what most people think that you have to be in the gym 24 seven, beefing it out, slapping dudes asses that are on the, the weight benches you know, seeing who has the bigger pectoral muscles, those types of things. Um, you know, we don't have to be drinking milkshakes and pouring them down each other's chest to to feel good about our health. We can actually do it in just high interval training sessions by ourselves with weights and become much more optimal and healthy. For more detailed information on that, that doesn't have a lot to do with pouring milk down the chest of other buff men, check out the guide. Literally, it's it's great stuff. And cold exposure. What some of you might not know, and if you do, if you're following Wim Hof and and Aubrey Marcus and all of, there's a big thing with cold water therapy these days. And that's good because it is so important and it disappeared for such a long time. But one of the best ways to have more energy and focus is really just to improve your mitochondrial function. So 
mitochondria, that's a power plant cell, right? Well, it turns out, and according to David's guide, which confirms all of this, cold exposure is one of the quickest ways to boost both the number of mitochondria in your body and how efficient the mitochondria are. So this is something that is, it's in charge of producing raw energy at your cellular functions, kind of creating and generating heat. So having better mitochondria and better performance within them is going to help your entire system. It also helps you warm yourself up when you're cold. So regular cold exposure is basically telling your body to create more mitochondria, which is then allowing you to create more heat for yourself on demand, even when you're not exposing yourself to cold if you don't want to. It also just makes you mentally tougher. Because if you can get into an ice bath every day, if you can turn that freezing cold shower on every day, if you can make yourself take a big jump butt naked from the top of a canyon into the crater lake at 50 degrees or below, you can pretty much accomplish anything after that, right? It benefits the immune system. It benefits the lymphatic system. There is so much, and I know it's cold and it's uncomfortable, but there is so much benefit to, to doing this type of thing. Grounding, we already talked about a little bit. Uh, there's more information in there about that and how it can reduce inflammation um, and has an um, just a massive effect on antioxidants in general, which lead to better sleep, um, better performance, better mental clarity, and less fatigue really is a big one for me that I've experienced. And last but not least, morning routines, setting the vibe for the rest of your day. We've talked a lot about that. It's all over my work. But if you're not doing something in the morning consistently, like taking some deep breaths, like meditating, making your tea and having a little ceremony for five minutes, whatever it is, calming your mind and picking the two things that are going to be the most important for you that day to move towards your visions and your dreams and then accomplishing them throughout the day with your actions. If you're not doing that, start right now. There's no fucking excuse not to be doing that. It is the most impactful thing ever. It creates momentum for the rest of your day and your day becomes ultra productive. And when your days are productive, your weeks are productive. When your weeks are productive, your years are productive. And then you find yourself at the gym, not only pouring milkshakes down the chest of buff men, but perhaps pouring milkshakes down the chest of Arnold Schwarzenegger himself, baby. So there's no reason not to have a morning routine. All right, we're going to get into this interview now. Um, all of that stuff that I just covered, if you want it in print, davidkrantz.com. You can check out the opt-in to get it. Um, it's totally worth it. All the show notes and links will be at heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. If you have a question for the show, which you got a couple last time, and I'm trying to work on getting some people on that will be able to answer them, I appreciate you, all you amazing people who submitted. Um, HeathArmstrong.com forward slash voice, or just shoot me a message on Instagram at HeathFistPumps. And then giveaway. I forgot to do these the last couple episodes, but I have these sweet-ass decks, and I have these sweet-ass journals, and I've got a new journal coming out for diabetics as well the sweet ass journal to optimize your diabetic lifestyle in 100 days. 
it's amazing. And I can't wait to take the information that we've learned and used in it and then make a new version of the happiness journal as well. Um, but go to heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. When you enter there, we'll do a drawing and you only have to enter once and then you get a chance to win a free gift from every episode that we do. So we'll start drawing those again. And yeah, heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. That's it. I'm going to get in here with David now. Um, he's a brilliant dude. He had a background of, of music and just kind of living the the musician life, late night, festivals, off schedule, always a different project, out of rhythm with his circadian gods. And then he had some universal signs that made a big change for him. And he has worked his way into this life of helping people with epigenetics and optimization. And it's very fascinating uh, we're going to talk about all of it in this episode, and I'm really, 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 really pumped up. So share this with all your family, your friends, your lovers, your butt lovers, your pups. Even dogs like this podcast. I'm not going to lie. They love it. They love my podcast. Put it on. Let them listen to it. You'll find out. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm very, very thankful for all of you listeners I'm very grateful for everyone who does share this. Um, and yeah, let's just keep building it out and bringing on amazing guests like David. And we'll get into this episode about nutrigenetics, epigenetics, nutrigenomics, and creative and creativity based on how you optimize your genetics. Here we go. <clears throat> now, let me start at the very beginning. Right. Personal optimization, biohacking, building synthesizers, raging late night shows, whatever you were doing, you know, late night with your music, messing up your circadian rhythm, nutrigenetics, epigenetics, nutrigenomics, running naked through the woods and plunging into cold bodies of water. Uh, I'm not sure to, I'm not sure where to even start with you, man, but it's all fascinating. It's all exciting. And I'm pumped to have you here. Um, and I'm, I'm really just like, a nerd when it comes to these types of subjects for, so thanks for coming on. You're absolutely welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk to other nerds about these kind of things and compare notes and see if we can generate some, some cool conversation for maybe people to get some value out of. <laughs> yeah. I, so I was in a similar position as you uh, kind of all out of whack at one point in my life. And I think many people go through this just based on the way that we are kind of brought up um, in this type of world that has drastically changed over the last century with the onset of technology and, and the way that we're marketed to and things like that. Uh, it was probably being in that, that hole or that just pain and inflammation and confusion and cloudiness, one of the most grateful things I've ever experienced in my life to me because you know I wasn't comfortable 
Um, and because I wasn't comfortable and because I was so miserable, it piqued my curiosity or my need to make changes enough um, that would allow me to overcome those things that were blocking me. And in that, I was able to completely transform every aspect of my life for the best. Um, and I think for many people, it, it may not be that lucky. Like a lot of people get into this like kind of moderately comfortable lifestyle and it doesn't really necessarily hurt, but it's not really peaking their excitement that much. And they kind of just stay there forever, right? Like they get a job they kind of like, they don't hate it enough to really analyze it and they stay there. They get in a relationship that they're like, okay with, but it's not like extremely uplifting to them. You know, it's not something that's pushing them to be the best version of themselves or to explore the deepest um, channels of excitement that are out into the world. So can, can we do a brief overview of how you kind of got obsessively into these types of topics and uh, personal optimization, biohacking, who were you before and how has that really completely shifted the way that you experience and view life now, if that's cool? Yeah, totally. The, what you were describing there, the term, the curse of mediocrity comes to oh, mind. Yeah. Just that like middle of the roadness uh, that can be so comfortable and so alluring yet uh, so stagnant. And, you know, what you're describing is, is pretty familiar to me in, in, in many ways. But uh, I guess where I started and how I got into what I'm into now um, you know, similar to what you're just, what you were saying, like it, it took really being at rock bottom in certain ways for me to really decide to make some changes and really feel like either I make, I, you know, I do something different or I'm just going to be stuck in this really bad place that I'd gotten myself into. And it wasn't necessarily one thing. It was this confluence of all these different factors that, um, you know, in my mid twenties, really early to mid twenties really kind of hit me by surprise and kind of crept up on me. You know, I, I've been a musician my whole life. And when I got to college, I, I got really into producing electronic music and was, you know, fortunate to be pretty good at it and started touring and releasing music and, um, you know, built up a little following and um, pretty quickly crashed my health by just not paying attention to what I was doing in my body, staying up all night. And at the same time, getting into a creative partnership that was really toxic that I didn't understand the relationship dynamics of and how like stressful that became really fast. Are you referring um, to the creative partnership of you and your music? With some, no, me and another person where oh, we're trying you. to make some stuff work. And it was like, it was, you know, clash of personalities and I was stubborn, he was stubborn. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where yeah, we were both projecting a lot of bullshit onto each other and, and didn't <laughs> know how to, how to handle it at the time. And, um, and it, it was just really stressful. And so that stress trying to make this relationship work and this partnership work added to the lifestyle of like trying to scrape by on, you know, making a little bit of money on gigs and, and just, the starving artist lifestyle um, put me in a situation where I started having really weird health problems crop up. I started passing out randomly. Um, and like, really? the, the, yeah, yeah. Like the, I was having like nervous system dysfunction. Like is the, that, the, so can you, I, I don't want to interrupt the story. We'll oh, sure. To that too, but this is interesting to me because I had some instances when I was really in that dark 
place myself where I would randomly pass out and I had never had any idea what it was. <laughs> yeah, doctors totally. would be like, I mean, they sent me to a neurologist one time and every, like I lost complete feeling in my right leg, uh-huh. my foot for like a week, which was interesting. Um, but I never really found it and I've never had actually heard anybody talk about it. So what was it that you were experiencing? That's so interesting. That That's really, I mean, that's not cool, but it's cool for me to hear because I haven't had a lot of other people to talk about that either. Um, so, you know, I, I went to, I went to a cardiologist, I went to other doctors too. And they were like, yeah, you're, you're basically healthy. There's nothing we can find here. <laughs> um, and what they kind of said was, you know, you have an overactive um, parasympathetic nervous system, like the, the freeze response, like fight, flight or freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they didn't really tell me that I kind of had to figure it out on my own. They, they gave me a hint, some hints. Um, but it was just a, you know, overactive stress response. And, you know, it, it took, and I know you're really into mindfulness and meditation and all that. And, and I feel like adding that in really going hard on, on that and yoga and other mind body practices got my body back to a place where I could regulate a little bit better. Um, but it was in combination with diet and everything eventually. So, so, you know, that started happening. I just decided like, okay, no one is going to give me an answer. I got to figure this out on my own. So I started looking into the biohacking world and looking at these other people that were describing this way of kind of self doing self experimentation and figuring this stuff out, tracking things and I took my obsessive creative musical brain and kind of applied it to that world uh, for a while and really just, you know, tried to, tried to get myself back in a place. You know, like it started to become a game of, okay, not only can I maybe feel a little bit better, but I wonder how good I could feel um, and, and started playing around with that. And synchronistically uh, I had kind of, I don't know, a life path altering, um, you know, one of those kind of events pop up where I I was working, you mentioned building synthesizers. I was working at Moog Music in Asheville and on my lunch break one day, I took a walk and realized that the logo on the building next door was one of my favorite, was the same logo as one of my favorite health podcasts that I've been listening to. And I've been absorbing all of this information from this one doctor who was an expert (laughs) in genetics. And lo and behold, he's got an office literally next door to where I'm working. (laughs) And so I booked a a call with the time to talk to him. I wanted to get some blood work done. I just wanted to work with him. And it turned out that they were actually hiring. uh, They were trying to find someone to hire to create some audio programs for this experimental sound chamber that they had built. This, you know, it's kind of a uh, high end, um, health clinic and, and they were doing you know some experimental stuff there and they wanted someone to build build out some brainwave entrainment and uh, meditation type programs for the sound chamber and i was like all right here it is this is what i'm supposed to be doing and so i started working there and right around the same time this doctor developed a training program for teaching his method in genetics and epigenetics and kind of personalized wellness and health and he asked me if I wanted to beta test this program for him basically and give him feedback on the training. And, and I initially said, no, I was like, you know, I don't really see myself as someone that would be a health practitioner or coach or anything like that. Um, but he kind of convinced me to do it and made me realize how much information I had absorbed to like fix my own problems and how 
I could actually apply that to other people. And so that kind of launched me down this other path. But, you know, I think it, it really took that sense of hitting rock bottom and just like being totally freaked out that like, I'm going to pass out and die or um, I'm going to be stuck in the same place forever. And, um, you know, that's kind of how I've gotten to, to where I am, I guess, the transition from, you know, being largely creatively music focused. And I, I still make music, but to more to, uh, uh, you know, practitioner and information based person who wants to just share this kind of stuff with people. Yeah. And impacting people's lives on a huge level. That's it's, uh, the, the universal hints like that always, they always make me a little bit wet, man. It's like, uh, you know, that kind of thing just doesn't, it's not a coincidence that, that you've been obsessively listening to that podcast and learning things. And then all of a sudden it's there. And then all of a sudden they have that position open just for you. Like there's a guided hand there in a way. And I, that's cool, man. That's a cool story. I think, so I, I interviewed a guy named Dave Lent many years ago and he was the first person they ever let inside San Quentin prison to, with a camera, with a video camera. And it was when he was just trying to figure out how to make his way into videography. And he somehow got into this prison that never let a camera in. And he, while interviewing one of the inmates, somebody got stabbed to death on his camera reel, like right there. And because of that, just insane moment. Not only was he just immediately like adrenaline addicted to just exposing, you know, problems in prisons or helping, you know, resolve these types of issues that were happening, but, you know, he was able to get a deal with that film that he had and then become like somebody who was a very influential videographer for many, many people and kind of a disciple of Joseph Campbell. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he got into that prison was just a spur of the moment universal thing. And he taught me basically when I was first getting started, he said, you know, when you follow your bliss, that thing that truly electrifies you, which is what you were starting to do as you were engaging with, you know, why is my body reacting this way? And why do I need to make these changes? You're starting to follow that, you know, how can I feel good bliss? And there's four things that automatically happen when you do that. You put yourself in the path of good luck. You meet the people that you want to know. Doors open where there weren't doors before and doors open for you that wouldn't open to anybody else. And that is basically, you know, Joseph Campbell type teaching. Uh, but it just fascinates me when that shit happens, dude. <laughs> like, oh, I know. Right. I totally agree. And it, it really bridges that larger consciousness thing that's going on around us and our own little myopic worldview that we're, you know, subject to in these bodies that, you know, this particular point in time. And it, it really takes you out of that, you know, singular self perspective and kind of gets you into the, the where's the boundary between your own mind and everything else way of thinking. And um, yeah, like you said, just uh, for me, following curiosity and following that sense of, of wonder, I think is, is so critical. And um, I don't know whether, you know, there's a, the question of, of causation versus uh, versus association there causation versus correlation, whether you're kind of creating those moments or you're just more attuned to them. I don't know, but I think there's something about, um, you know, some type of resonance with the kind of larger flow when you're able to really engage with that stuff. And like we were talking about a little bit before the call, I think, um, 
being in a state of kind of just higher brain function, higher body function might create a little bit more receptivity and ability to engage with that type of awareness simply because there's more pistons firing and the, yeah. you know, and, and just the ability to actually have that um, kind of mental capacity to, to really give your attention to that. Yeah. Less, less blockages. And I mean, there, I turned around a lifelong, pretty serious health issue on a 75 minute intense breathwork ceremony in the middle of Nicaragua. Um, and I'm talking about like extreme acid reflux, heartburn, not being able to eat anything spicy in the period of 75 minutes was able to completely release that to the point where it never came back and I can eat the spiciest stuff in the world. Um, and it, you are cleaning these blockages and creating, you know, these channels to come in that help, you know, you're, you're picking up these receptors like you're talking about. It's, it's something that once you make the choice that you're going to start working on, it just keeps unfolding. And then once you start having those incidents where you see the correlation, it's, it's kind of like, you can't stop. You're not going to want to stop, but like, once you get it, you're just going to keep doing it and you keep expanding. And it's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, that actually might lead us nicely into epigenetics around some of those kind of spontaneous changes that come from those practices like breath work or other things that seem mystical or a bit magical. But I think that maybe we can look at epigenetics from the perspective of it being a potential interface or, or mediator between the mind and the body and, and those types of things that, that typically don't have much explanation, but I think there's more to it that we can actually point to on a physiological and, and biochemical level there. Can you give an overview of what epigenetics is for people who are thinking, what is this term? What is this? Yeah, method? totally. And then we can get into some of the topics underneath that for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So epigenetics uh, translates to mean control over genetics. And I'll just kind of back up and, and give you a little bit of the history because I think it's helpful to contextualize how we kind of came to understand what this is doing. Um, and so, you know, when we discovered the structure of DNA back in the 50s, and I, I say we, I don't really mean me, I just mean people <laughs> in general. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we discovered the structure of DNA, it was, it was this very rigid understanding where it was genes that code for proteins that code for traits. And that was kind of it, you know, it was thought that you're given a set of, of, of genes and you're kind of fixed with this destiny, right? Like you, you're either going to get heart disease, you're going to get cancer or you know, you're going to be smart or you're not. And there wasn't really a lot of attention to the environmental variables that can influence those things and how they show up. And then about 30 years ago, they started to discover that there's this other layer to DNA that changes the expression of those genes. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you have the, the instructions for all of the different proteins and molecules in your body that are encoded in your DNA. So you've got genes that say code for your hair color, right? And your specific hair, hair color is because you have this specific arrangement of little amino acids in your DNA that it's kind of like the instruction manual that when your RNA is going through and reading it and saying, all right, we're going to assemble these proteins. They're putting it together because of that specific kind of code that's there. 
but you know, people's hair color changes over time. People go gray. And that's actually an epigenetic process where that protein changes over time based on these little markers that get attached to the DNA. And there's all these different types. There's certain ones that can either turn down the expression of a protein, say like, yeah, let's make less of it or ones that can make more of it. And there's ones that can kind of change the shape which, you know, might be like a different color thing. So if you think about maybe one of those proteins is a, is a pigment protein for your hair um, that might have a marker attached to it over time that says, all right, start like make less of that. And these things happen at different time scales, right? So, you know, there's certain things that happen over a lifetime like that. Another good example would be like the lactase gene that makes lac, you know, uh, lactase breaks down lactose in milk. Uh, you know, most babies, all, pretty much all babies are born with the ability to break down lactose from their mother's milk. And then over time, you know, a good percentage of people kind of lose that enzyme function and become lactose intolerant and just kind of baked in to the system. Like, you know, you don't necessarily need that as much. But what's kind of interesting yeah, once is you're that, done feeding from your mother, generally mm -hmm. it goes away and that's why it's built in there. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also the environmental variable where people that were in cultures that drank a lot more milk tend to have a better ability later in life based on their ancestry and that environmental exposure. And there's probably some epigenetic things going on there, but this is, happens at different timescales. So, you know, another epigenetic thing is circadian rhythm and circadian genes. Like when you go to sleep, your body starts producing melatonin. And at the beginning of every single gene, there's these um, circadian genes that kind of turn on and off other genes throughout the day. And uh, those are subject to similar kind of fast moving epigenetic marks. Like you can, the, someone's I've heard someone say like, I like this metaphor that some things are written in pencil and some things are written in pen where the things that in pencil, you can erase real quick and change. And this is just, you know, in response to the environment. Um, and, you know, so when you wake up in the morning, you want to have a different set of hormones than you do at night to kind of shift that function. And those things are under epigenetic control, kind of tells certain proteins to get made, make certain biochemicals at this time, not at this other time. Um, but, as, but this also happens on a much larger time scale where some things do kind of get hard coded. And this is actually in terms of intergenerational things. Like they've shown that stress and trauma uh, can be passed down from generation to generation. And it's not necessarily that like the memory itself is passed down, but it's sort of the body's biological response to that stress or trauma that gets hardwired and, and hard coded. Because if you think about, you know, what our bodies are trying to do is they're, they're just, they're trying to prepare the next generation to be able to respond well to whatever environment that you're in. And there's all these studies that show, you know, when you expose uh, rats to high stress environments, it changes genetic expression so that their children and offspring have a heightened stress response so that they're more sensitive to that type of thing. And same thing happens in humans. Like um, my grandparents on my mom's side were Holocaust survivors. And there's really good studies looking at um, 
stress response in children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors and that it's more exaggerated and uh, tends to be a little more maladaptive. Um, but it's because, hey, like, you know, when you go through something like that, you want to prepare the next generations to potentially go through something similar, right? Like, that's just an innate response uh, to say, like, yeah, maybe we should upregulate the, the stress system so that in case there's a event where we need to run away real fast, you can do it. Um, <laughs> and so I actually think in terms of some of the stuff I was experiencing around passing out uh, and having kind of a dysregulated nervous system. I think that I was to some degree born with a little bit more of a propensity for that, uh, potentially because of some family trauma. Uh, I mean, when I think about like my childhood, like I was kind of in an, you know, not a very happy kid. Like I, I just, it took a lot for me to feel happy and calm compared to other kids, even though I was raised in a pretty good environment um, and just kind of had that stress predisposition that I've, I've learned to change over time. But that's an example of, you know, like a longer timescale thing. And there's other examples, like there's a classic kind of study example where um, in, during World War II, again, there was a, a region of Holland that um, didn't have access to food for a period of time. It's called the Dutch hunger uh, famine or Dutch hunger winter. And they have found that children and grandchildren of women that were pregnant at that time have these really specific clusters of symptoms around obesity and type 2 diabetes and things that have to do with energy balance and metabolism and that they were um you know exposed to these conditions where hey there's this really weird lack of food there's you know, going on while you're in the womb. And so they had these epigenetic changes and they found, you know, in certain genes, there's, there's changes that accompany these types of uh, symptoms and phenotypes. And, you know, they see the, the lasting mark of that type of, you know, caloric restriction during pregnancy generations later. And so, you know, in terms of thinking about it, what, just tying it back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of overhauling your diet nutrition and the habits and your circadian rhythm and mindfulness and all these things. Well, one of the core um, factors that links all those things together is epigenetic changes where all of these different biohacks and things that we know kind of, you know, exercise is good for you eating greens and, and, you know, not eating processed food is good for you. Well, it's kind of kind of difficult to necessarily point to a mechanism that says that's like a reason why all these things work so well together. But when you start looking at epigenetics, it's kind of this interface that uh, connects say mind body practices like meditation or even, you know, potentially something like breath work or psychedelics where uh, you see kind of spontaneous changes um, to these physical changes that happen. And like, you know, there's, there's studies looking at uh, epigenetic changes with meditation and about 2,000, 3,000 different genes change with regular meditation over time around things that are anti-inflammatory and down-regulating pro-inflammatory genes. And you see the same thing with exercise. And, um, you're essentially the, healing, right? You're, you're, you're kind of healing your line there at that point to engage in these types of things 
where particularly benefiting, you know, if you have an offspring, um, it will carry on. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, the potential that some things are going to be more impactful than others, but there's really good data looking at all of the different things that we kind of know, you know, you shouldn't do before pregnancy. You shouldn't be drinking. You shouldn't, you know, like those things have significant epigenetic negative influences. And then like things that we know are kind of good exercise and eating healthy, like those have positive epigenetic changes. So yeah, I, I would, I would, I would venture to guess that the ability to do some lineage healing is going to come from both, you know, the physical and the mental. And, you know, I, I, I tend to think of it in terms of, okay, there's these biochemical things that get passed down, but there's also, of course, the emotional and, and, and interactional things like the actual relationship things mm-hmm. that when you know you heal those things internally heal emotional wounding and change the epigenetic course of say how you're creating stress stress hormones or but you know different neurochemistry when a triggering event comes up and you're able to make a different choice and have more of a more agency over the way you respond to something like the actual um relational things that come from that reinforce the biochemical and epigenetic changes. And so it's sort of this holistic way of thinking about how uh, relationships, emotions, and our neuro and biochemistry kind of all interact and then either contribute to making lasting changes that, you know, you can kind of classify as either having like a positive effect or a negative effect, which, you know, is kind of arbitrary to a degree, but, uh, you know, I think most people have an idea of what they want to see and what they don't want to see. Yeah. Do you think collectively that the way that we all think as a world can have an effect on it as well? Like, I mean, the culture embeds a lot of these things over time. Like we, I, I boiled my water this morning to make tea essentially because at some point, you know, tsunamis were, and this is something that I just learned the other day, tsunamis were flooding China and to prevent themselves from getting sick by using the water that they would normally use because it was being mixed with ocean water, they had to boil it out. Um, And then over time, that tea culture grew into the religion, kept it as a staple, and it became kind of a thing to boil your water and make the tea. The same with like eating people who eat pork, um, you know, you stopped eating pork in a big section of a lot of world religion in some way, generally because worms, you know, worms mm-hmm. could kill you if you ate pork. So at some point it might not have been so much that like pork is sacred as much as it was, Hey, this will kill you. So we're not going to eat it. So this is now part of the way that we think. And then it kind of grows and grows and grows that in itself, if a large group of people in a concentrated area stop eating pork, then over time that kind of DNA, maybe, if somebody now from that lineage starts eating it, maybe it's more inflammatory to their system. Who knows? It's kind of an interesting thing, but I, I wanted to ask you on the collective point, just what your thoughts were on that. But then also if somebody else, like you were just mentioning for somebody who's kind of thinking about this from their own personal perspective, epigenetics, um, what, what is the process like if you, someone comes to you and says, Hey, I want to figure out how to optimize myself. You know, we have these biohacking techniques or we have 
this kind of information that I know about myself personally, but how do I actually figure out what is optimal for me? And, and so how do you, how do you move through that process just from, you know, a, a forward to backwards, or I guess a, a linear, I don't, I don't know what the correct term is there. What's the process like essentially? Yeah, sure. So I'll, uh, I'll address your first question and then we'll get into some of the details of like how I work with people and how we might think about, you know, making changes and transformations. Um, but in terms of the cultural piece, I think it's huge. And I'll point you towards a guy's work named Mario Martinez, who can articulate this so much better than I can. But he's done a bunch of work looking at the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which is the interface of, hey, the mind and how it impacts uh, the immune system, kind of this interface. And he's added this cultural layer. So he calls himself a cultural psychoneuroimmunologist. And he's taken all of these different snapshots of different cultures around the world and shown how these different belief systems in culture impact the expression of different genes and impact the uh, kind of biochemical correlates of those belief systems. And you can see that, like take language for an example, um, uh, Asian cultures, you know, tend to be more collectivistic in the way they perceive themselves. And you can actually see this in terms of brain areas in the brain that light up when people think about certain thoughts. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and if you think about what the implications are for creating health, like, what does that mean as far as whether I'm healthy or I'm my community is healthy and thinking about relationships in that way and how that might, you know, go in into um, creating these kind of dynamics and predispositions that aren't just, don't just stop at the individual self, but are tied into the, the culture. And I think that's a, a really important part of any healing process or any transformation process is to really try and see the water that you're swimming in, you know, and, and be able to start to identify where certain thoughts about yourself come, you know, have come from, like, like, you know, I've formed this sense of identity because of my experiences growing up in the particular way I did. And, you know, I think it, it ties, it ties into a lot of the reasons why like psychodynamic therapy works well in terms of examining, um, you know, your family of origin and relationships that you've had and experiences and how they shape your current patterns, you know, and the opportunity to gain insight into those things and then say, all right, well, now that I have more agency as an adult, I, you know, even though I'm kind of ingrained into this pattern, I now have a choice because I can understand where those things come from and at least can start to make um, the possibility of a, of a different change. And when you look at some of the current literature on epigenetics and therapy, you know, just having a one-on-one -on -one relationship with someone and deciding we're going to go, I'm going to be really honest about these parts of myself and explore them and start talking about these things. Well, you know, the, the limited amount of studies that have been done show that effective therapeutic outcomes also have epigenetic changes and involved with them. And so you're, you're, thinking about changing patterns, changing your relationship to your culture, to yourself, 
and it's this you know kind of embedded process that informs all these different you know things that that create change habit change right um so yeah it's it's a big big conversation uh i just think the epigenetic perspective gives a lot of um depth and validity to things that have less concrete um less concrete mechanisms of of action right um you know in terms of something like breath work where why would that all of a sudden spontaneously shift this condition that you've had for so long um i would guess that there's probably some genetic expression shift going on for you there absolutely so fascinating too (laughs) yeah yeah, and it, it it leaves a lot more questions yeah, open than it than it really answers. But it kind of makes you think of what else is possible. Uh huh. Yeah, and and that's the thing is I think it's a really empowering perspective too because instead of saying okay you were born with this set of genes and that's it you're stuck, it creates more of an ability to create change and not just for yourself but for future generations, which I don't know I think is pretty cool from from my vantage point. Yeah, man. So when when you work with people who are trying to kind of optimize themselves, I, I understand it's pretty black and white as far as like, not everybody is going to thrive off the same diet. That's a pretty common, you know, sense type approach. And we could talk a little bit about that too, because I think it is important, but it's types, you know, the types of exercising and the environments that you're living in. And also like your kind of your effect as or how toxins or other types of things affect you compared to other people can be different. And ultimately um, I I saw a note that you wrote at one point that I'd like to talk about after this as well, about how different psychoactives and uh, cannabinoids and and psychedelics affect certain people differently than others compared to dosages. And I think that's kind of the same. I mean, if you look at a scale of that, it's similar to how diets can affect different people. Um, depending on what you're eating or where you're eating it and what the source is and things like that. So yeah, man, let's ball out on this, this subject of if, if I'm just a confused little boy who comes to you and says, I want to optimize myself right now. (laughs) Um, uh, How does that start? Like, how do we, how do we walk through that process? Yeah, totally. So what you're hitting on is, right in line with how I work with people. So I I really think of it as connecting the underlying genetics with the right practices that are going to create positive epigenetic changes. And I start by looking directly at people's genes and doing a genetic test. And, you know, it's a tool. It's really more about the transformation that happens through using that tool. But I do think it's pretty interesting to look at that. So, um, you know, since we mapped the human genome in 2001 or so, there've been hundreds of thousands of studies looking at what are called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are kind of these one letter differences between one person's DNA code and another. And there's been all these studies that have kind of characterized what these differences do. Some are really tiny, some don't do that much, and some have a pretty decent sized impact on how your body is going to respond to different nutrients, to, like you said, different toxins, 
and create kind of differential responses in terms of diet and it really and psychoactives as well. And I started looking at the psychoactive side of things because I started learning about the diet side and said, wow, there's, there's something there. Um, but, you know, to give you a concrete example, like why can someone do a vegan diet for 20 years and feel amazing and swear that this is what everyone needs to do? And then someone else tries the exact same diet for a couple of years and all of a sudden their hair is falling out and they're super tired, uh, <laughs> you know, and then they switch to a paleo diet. My hand like, raised on that one. Yeah. And, and, um, and why, what, what's the difference? Well, I, but it's say, let's pretend that diet is the exact same. They were literally getting the exact same nutrients. Well, there are different pathways in the body that utilize those nutrients, right? Like when you take in vitamin A, you are going to use it in different places in your body. There's different functions it serves. And some people have genetic variations that either cause them to use more of a certain nutrient, convert it from one form to another more or less efficiently, or have a response to a certain nutrient that is either less or more favorable, right? Like there's, uh, there's these gene variants that have been studied with vitamin E where certain people are prone to more inflammation if they take too much vitamin E. And other people, you know, get a good benefit from it. So, you know, something that's touted as an antioxidant, when you look at these, you know, and vitamin E was kind of one of the first antioxidants that they started looking at in the 90s to say, like, what happens if we give people high-dose vitamin E? Is it going to help them? A lot of the outcomes in those studies were not good. And that's why one of the reasons why people say now, like, yeah, you, can, you shouldn't actually overdo antioxidants. But when you look at some of the genetics involved in that, some people are way more prone to issues with it than others. Um, and same thing with something like saturated fat where, you know, the keto diet's gotten really popular. Um, and there's certain genes that cause some people to have real issues when they have diets that are high in saturated fat. And then you have a smaller percent of the population that does really well with it. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, keto has kind of come up as this, counterculture in a way to mainstream diet world um, to say like, Hey, you know, we're like, this thing works really well for us. Um, well, there's certain genetic variables and reasons why, um, you know, some people might not want to do that. And that's yeah. one of the, one of one of the things that I, I really, you know, screen for and look for with my clients is let's figure out what you shouldn't do first. Like let's <laughs> really make sure that, that, um, you know, what, what types of fat, what, how much protein, what type, you know, how many carb, how much carbs, what percentage of carbs, um, is going to create the best outcome. And we kind of start there. And then we, I, I did the keto once. <laughs> I mean, I did it for like a decent amount of time, but I legitimately ended it when I shit my pants while sitting on a couch, just came <laughs> straight through. Like, and I was like, and I'd felt miserable. I mean, the, the, the clarity high on the end of that there were certain times where I just felt like remarkably in tune and able to focus. But after reviewing it, when I got out of it, I was like, actually I have that clarity all the time when I'm not doing that. It just felt so good when I did get the clarity in that. Cause most of the time I was just like spending all my energy digesting certain types of foods that were not working out at all for my digestive system. So mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And, um, 
it actually works pretty well for me. And I think I kind of got lucky when I started doing the biohacking thing is that I, I started with a higher fat approach, but it worked well for me. And then my wife started to gain a bunch of weight because I started cooking with really high fat. And she was like, all right, this is not, this does not work for me. And oh, yeah. that, that was at, at a time before I really started to understand the genes. And I kind of had this mindset of like, no, it should work for you. You know, it works <laughs> for me. And then when we looked at our genes, I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry for trying to fit you into a box that you really right. shouldn't be trying to fit yourself into. And, and so part of what I think, um, and I'll continue with, you know, the way I work with people in a sec, but part of what I think is so powerful about this type of thing is the sense of, of empathy like bio empathy that you can get for other people when someone, uh, you know, is different than you and, and responds differently. Um, you know, one of the, the big things that kind of struck me when I started looking into the cannabis stuff and the, um, you know, psychoactives is like, I grew up loving weed. It was just something that I really <laughs> responded well to. And I remember, you know, being in high school and just not understanding friends that didn't really like smoking weed and like didn't make it feel good. And, you know, they didn't get the same type of positive response. And I mean, it literally took 10 years later until I discovered this information and had some like hard data to say, all right, these genes have actually been studied to like, and that there's correlations that have been made with people that uh, experience paranoia and anxiety with cannabis more yeah. so than other people. And, and like, I think that actually giving language and giving mechanisms to why some of these things occur diffuse some of that sense of, well, everyone should be like me because yeah, like judgment and opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was, yeah. I mean, I, until I figured out like the optimal type of dose and tincture and strain that worked well for me, I was definitely the paranoid, like anxious one. And I had best friends who would just like pound that shit hard and be completely fine. So it was always a question to me is like, why does it, you know, why does it react this way? It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And I think that there's the interaction of uh, set setting strain and genetics, you know, it's like all of those things kind of come into play where um, someone with some pretty extreme predispositions might not ever really be able to find a strain that works for them. Whereas, you know, someone like yourself, it might be more strain related. And I think there's just that kind of continuum that exists in, the, in that spectrum. Cause you know, there's the, you just haven't tried the right strain, bro. Come on. You know, like <laughs> mentality too, which um, might be true for some people, but I also think that, you know, it's, it, it, it there, there is some variability there. Come on, bro. Uh, you just got to boof it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, in terms of, you know, with the way I work with clients, like I start with a genetic test, we look at those variables and then we really work on how do you implement those things? Uh, and we were talking about this before the call where you can know the information, but actually applying it and creating habits and learning how to have the mental capacity to make those changes is a totally different skill. What's so, the, um, before we cover that, what's the actual gene test that you do? Is there a specific like box kit where you do like blood and hair and urine and that type of thing? Or is it like a, a I mean, how do you actually take the sample? I'm just curious. Yeah. So I, I'm affiliated with a company called Apiron. Um, 
and I use their genetic test kit. I really love it. I actually got to help create some or like choose some of the genetic SIPs that we're looking at, uh, especially related to endocannabinoid genes, um, which we can talk a little bit more about. So, uh, but it's comprehensive and it's super private, privacy secure. Like um, 23andMe actually just announced that like, which is for people that don't know, like the big direct to consumer um, genetic test they just announced that like their earnings were down last year and you know, they're letting a hundred employees go and it just doesn't surprise me at all because their privacy and their data policy sucks. Like yeah. it's, it's horrible. It, it's, it's totally taking advantage of consumers and um, you know, they're selling people's data to pharmaceutical companies and oh. yeah, their, their model is built on harvesting people's data for their personal gain. And so, you know, you see, a lot of bad actors in the space that kind of thought they could get away with it when it was a new industry. And now I think the landscape has really changed to where companies that are uh, rewarding customers for their data or just making sure that like, Hey, we're, we're giving you ownership of your data. We want nothing to do with it. We're just acting as a conduit here. Um, That's really what's I think, you know, the future. And so that's like the company that I work with, um, because our user data, data and pol- and privacy policy is really transparent and good. So I use their their test. Uh, it's a cheek swab test you can do at home. I send you a kit in the mail, and um, then from there I, I analyze different categories of genes. So I, I look at things that um, you know influence nutrition and different nutrients, uh, sleep and circadian rhythm hormones, uh, different antioxidants and detoxification pathways in the body, and then endocannabinoid genes. What do you um, think? Do you think sleep is sleep the first thing you usually look at sleep and diet? Are those the main? Yeah. I mean, in terms of looking at the big, the big things that are going to create change the quickest, if you're not sleeping, like you can do all the other biohacks and nutritional stuff in the world, but that's just what kind of glues everything together. I mean, it's a, I know people that work late night jobs or, or, um, or kind of fucked in their circadian rhythm. Isn't it's almost like a carcinogen in a way. Um, I think, I feel like I read a study somewhere. Yeah. The world health organization classifies shift work as a, as a, as a class 2A carcinogen. 2A, uh, wow. So yeah, meaning it's, that it's, it's likely to cause cancer or that there's enough <laughs> data. To, yeah, people that do shift work. And it's not necessarily, I think what they're classifying it as is people that um, have an irregular night rhythm. Right. Where it's not just they're up at night, but they're like, you know, doing three days a week and then they switch schedule and then doing that again. And so it's that irregularity and that inconsistency that's the most detrimental there. Right. So on the topic of sleep, what are some of the most common things you see with that are, that are kind of holding people back from getting the best sleep that they can get? You know, a lot of it I think is, is mental where people have this idea that I just sleep this certain way. I, I go to bed at 12, I go to bed at two and that's just how it is. And there, there's like, a lot of inflexibility around wanting to change that because, you know, you build your lifestyle around that and it can be difficult to, to change your identity and relationship to what you do at night. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I think on a more just practice based level, a lot of people are getting light wrong for sure around too much screens, uh, too much blue light at night, um, blacking things out, blacking things out at night is huge. And then also sunlight. Like I think one of the biggest missing factors in the sleep conversation is how much natural light you're getting throughout the day because um, you know, the body is really responsive to light signals and you know, they're, they're like you just said, you know, blacking out your room has been shown to create deeper sleep, like just zero light at night. But on the flip side, having good solid sunlight exposure during the day reinforces that. And so I tell all my clients and, you know, anyone that's listening, like first thing you do in the morning is just pop your head outside 20 seconds if you can right. and just get some light on your eyes and your skin like as quickly as you can in the morning and it starts to turn on a lot of the biological processes that are responsive to light in the same way that turning light off at night starts to engage these other uh sleep-based processes so when when you're i know we're getting short on time here but i want to cover something in particular kind of the effect of all of this when you're working through someone and into you know optimizing creative expression or or you know, high energy and, and the types of things that are going to allow a person to change their life forever. And I kind of, I think a lot of it does come down to biohacking a bit. Um, but like if our goal as humans is not to suffer, but it's to be happy and to feel good, this is generally the result of living a life that has some sort of passion and purpose and creative expression with it. And I've found that my entire body and my mind, they all kind of suffer when I'm not creating or I'm not applying my purposes. and biohacking, even in itself, and this is obviously just beginning stages of what you're able to do with people when you work with them in particular on their genetics and the types of diets they should have and the sleep patterns that are optimal and the, the nutrients and the toxins and all that cool stuff. Um, it has kind of been the anchor that has allowed me to get into optimal performance that I need to always be creating and moving forward and applying purpose and healing and shining that lighthouse, you know, or disco dancing, all, all the good stuff. And there's kind of two parts of this I want to cover briefly, if possible. Uh, one is just like my grandmother's 96. She was born in 1923. She's almost 100 years old. And it's insane to think about what she has witnessed from candles and horses to, you know, drones and LED lights and Teslas. And I'm asking, like, from your perspective, how has that drastic onset of technology over the past century disrupted the environment? which has kind of disrupted our bodies and ultimately our ability to be optimal, just so people have a bigger understanding of why these things are so important to, op, you know, to implement in our lives. Yeah. I mean, I think that's huge. And I think that's a question that is hard to answer because it's a big uncontrolled experiment. But at the same time, I think there's enough data to say like, yeah, there's some pretty big issues with the electromagnetic environment, the light environment. When you look at, you know, kind of the, the massive decrease that we've created in infectious diseases, like, you know, we've gotten good at washing our hands and controlling, you know, and creating, uh, medications for all kinds, you know, polio and, and all these things that were wiping people out really early on, you know, early in the century. But we're looking at this kind of increase in neurodegenerative diseases and, and cancers and things that are kind of a byproduct of 
the environment. And, you know, on one hand, people are living longer. So those things like diseases of lifestyle show up more. But I think there's also a lot of things that we could be doing differently around lighting, like biologically friendly lighting. Um, like when you look at, you know, the rise of obesity and type two diabetes, well, guess what in studies has been really strongly linked to altered glucose metabolism and incidence of uh, type two diabetes and, and rodents and everything and is light, blue light. Um, really significantly changes the way that our body responds to these things. And, um, you know, I think we're going to look back, hopefully, in, hope, you know, I was going to say 20 years, I'm hoping it's like five years or less, uh, and say, <laughs> wow, we were really getting the light thing wrong. Because, yeah, like, our ancestors never had, you know, comp like, flore fluorescent lights. Like, it's it's yeah. a totally new thing. And our bodies evolved with a really tightly tuned light and an electromagnetic environment on the earth. And we've kind of thrown that on its head. And I think we're, we're seeing the, the results of it in a negative way. So, you know, it is kind of incumbent upon you as, you know, an individual to say like, yeah, you know, I'm going to make these changes for myself and change my environment. And like you're saying, and like I've experienced and I see with my clients all the time, um, you know, when you start to make those shifts and changes, it feels different in the way that you have um, agency and the ability to make different choices because your body is functioning differently. You have a different sense of being able to be self-aware. Like, you know, when you're, when you're not feeling good, like you kind of tune it out, you know, it's kind of an innate yeah response to say like, yeah, I don't really want to pay attention to the way my body's feeling right now. So I'm going to be less sensitive to it. Uh, and then when you start to make changes where, you know, there's, there's the, the opening to say like, yeah, actually like can tolerate this a little bit more. Your, your window of tolerance goes up and you're able to engage with, you know, a little bit wider spectrum of how you're feeling. I, I think that that's important. And, um, what you were saying about just creative expression and feeling like that actually reinforces all those things. I think it's totally spot on. And there's a few studies that have been done. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm pointing to studies that I like the data. I think it just, um, you know, is nice to have some confirmation for things we kind of already know, but at the same time, it's also intuitive that when you follow your pap person, uh, purpose and passion like they've shown actual better epigenetic immune response in people that are doing that versus um getting pleasure predominantly from hedonistic means like there's a really cool study that was done at ucla where they were looking at these two groups of people in happiness and finding that people that led a life where they're deriving more happiness from purpose uh, had a better immune profile and so i think there's like uh just a really great reinforcing thing that happens when you know you're you're kind of hitting on all cylinders and i think that i just love talking to people like yourself who've experienced that because it, it it's one of those things that like you can't know until you start to get to the next threshold or plateau and yeah. um you can't know what you don't know well dude i I could talk to you forever about these topics 
and maybe you'll have to come back on again. But there's for everybody listening and talking about biohacking and all these different subjects, David's got an amazing, he's got a, a cheat sheet basically about general biohacking that you can do in your life on his website at david-krantz.com. And I'll put it in the show notes. That's K-R-A-N-T-Z. Um, it covers circadian rhythm, blue light blocking, intermittent fasting, omega-3s versus omega-6, toxin exposure, meditation and heart rate variability, uh, exercising, cold exposure, which is a big favorite of mine to you know increase mitochondria and energy and clarity, and then earthing, grounding, morning routines. And it's, it's incredible. So go download that because it's, it's awesome. I actually read through it last night and it was a good reminder of things that I have been working through myself over the past years. Um, and this is piquing my curiosity for anybody out there. Like, even if you're already somewhat optimal in a position sort of like me, like I feel like I, I feel good. I have high clarity and energy. I'm performing on a high level, but there's still always improvement to be made. Um, and if you're not, if you haven't started discovering that type of thing, this is the perfect opportunity. I mean, I'm, I've never done the DNA testing side of it. And I was talking to my sister about it a couple weeks ago, cause I would love to see what would be optimal. Like what is my optimal diet? Am I, or is the way that I'm eating right now that has started making me feel better optimal or could I possibly feel better by switching it up even a little bit more? I'm sure that's probably the case. Um, you know, the, the more you experiment and the more you start to figure out what actually makes you feel incredible, it's kind of surprising because you, you realize you actually didn't feel that good ever, you know, and then you get that, that high and you're like, wow, I don't, you know, I don't need to be pounding all these drugs and alcohol anymore to kind of desensitize myself. Um, this feeling is, is so much better than anything else I've ever had. And you're making, uh, you're paving the way, dude, paving the way for that to happen for people. And that's a big deal. Yeah, well, I think we've had very similar experiences around that and be happy to do some genetics for you and see what's optimal for you. And, you know, usually what I find is people that have been steeped in the self-experimentation uh, find things that really give credit to intuition and some of the things you probably already know, but then you can look at some reasons why. And there's still almost always stuff that you haven't tried and, and couldn't really know without the genes, but it's always really cool to do this with people that are already pretty tapped in and tuned in to their bodies and to their habits because it adds this other dimension to say, oh yeah, that's like why eating this particular thing makes me feel this certain way. Now that I have some connections and reasons, uh, it, there's another layer of depth and complexity that you can kind of engage with. There. And trust in like your body because it does tell you things, you know, if you can learn to communicate with your body and the signals it's giving you like, yeah, if you're, if you get fucking terribly hung over from drinking beer, like your body's trying to tell you something, right? Don't keep doing it. And it's easy to do that. But like, you shift that entire biome that's going on and you take it away from all these things that are telling your body to consume, you know, sugars and sweets and, or whatever that is making you feel bad. Uh, and then you kind of replace that with the good stuff that's craving greens and kombucha or whatever fermentation, things that actually make you feel good. Eventually that, that sweet craving turns to this craving for healthy things and it, and it makes you feel optimal all the time. And, um, yeah, it's exciting. So, Dude, where can, uh, so davidkrantz.com, I'll post that. Are you on social media anywhere? Yeah, I'm on social media. My Facebook page is David Krantz Epigenetic Coach. And I'm on Instagram at Whole Systems Health. 
And anyone that's interested in seeing if genetic interpretation and epigenetic coaching is a good fit, I offer free 30-minute consultations. Uh, you can book directly on my site. We can have a, have a chat and see if can help you out in terms of moving towards optimal. And uh, yeah, also have that free gift as far as the uh, top 10 tips for late night creatives that you were mentioning. So you can go and download that off my site as well. Yeah, it's actually really good. I mean, I'm, I've seen a massive amount of really shitty opt-ins and lead magnets being in the marketing industry. And when I was reading it, I was like, damn, this is like, I take pride in creating content that's really good for people. And I was actually really, uh, really interested in, in, proud of your of your guides so i appreciate that i see a lot of crappy ones too it's saying so. a lot <laughs> yeah yeah you know there's the balance of um you know providing something that's useful and valuable but is quick to read and and isn't going to take a ton of your time so i think it yeah. skirts that balance pretty not well. only do you have the nice infographic but you have some actual breakdowns that i learned quite a bit of things from and i'm i'm going to share probably a lot of those pre in earlier on in this show so dude Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Pumped that we connected and we'll connect again, I'm sure. And uh, you can, I'll let you go because I know you got something going on, but give the uh, Appalachian Mountains a big hug for me. Yeah. Likewise with the Pacific Northwest for me. Um, Yeah. Really, really huge pleasure talking with you and look forward to doing it again. Yeah. Cool. There's a place called space and it's got the magic. There's a place called space and it's got the balls. There's a place called space and it's got the passion. There's a place called space where we can smash the walls. There's a place called space where we'll face fuck conformity and the chatter of incompetence and slaughtered at birth. In this place called space, we'll build a factory of smiles that will assemble with our minds and sell to earth. My name's Todd. I'm one of Heath's happening assistants, and I heard him talking a lot about pouring muscle milk all over biceps, and it it got me a little bit excited to come on and just share my experience with muscle milk and biceps. Well, you know, my experience is not limited, but I don't have all the time in the world to really talk about it. I will just say that it's kinky. It's super kinky, if you know what I mean. On another note, all the show notes at heatharmstrong.com forward slash podcast. If you want to enter the giveaway like he said, heatharmstrong.com forward slash giveaway. And you can get all of the links that we talked about in the show for David's site at HeathArmstrong.com forward slash podcast. We are on Stitcher. We are on Google Play. We are on Spotify and we are on iTunes. And we're going to start having a war, baby. Spotify is currently leading as the top uh, flow of downloads for this show. And I'm just curious 
How did you fall behind, Apple? How did you do it? I don't know. But you better pull those pants up, get some muscle milk on that chest, and get back in the front line. We're happy that you joined us today, and we hope that the rest of your week is quite sound. We love you. We're thinking about you. And ta-ta!